0: and welcome back to Scottish Independence Podcast. We have a real treat for you this week, the fabulous Dr. Philippa Wickford giving a presentation called Scotland, a European Nation. And this was originally given to the group Yes4EU to mark Europe Day this year. If you'd like to see the video version of this, you'll find it on Yes4EU's YouTube channel. We'll put the links in the notes below.
1: So, Scotland, a European nation, well, there's no question about Scotland being a European nation. Scotland's actually one of the oldest nations in Europe and has always had leanings towards continental Europe. Scotland traded with the Hanseatic League, and of course, we have the old alliance with France. And we spent longer as an independent country dealing with our European neighbours than we've actually spent in the UK political union that we're in at the moment. And what I want to talk about a little bit, I've shared things in the past about why we would want to be in the EU. I think that's relatively obvious, most of them, but also a little bit about why the EU would want us. So that's very much the focus uh, of the talk tonight. So the reasons for an independent Scotland to join the EU are actually relatively obvious. We've spent the last over two years debating the impact of Brexit, which actually keeps on getting worse. It's not something that's settling down. And the whole point of joining the EU, or in essence rejoining the EU, is to try and reverse that damage. So things like removing some of the trade barriers that are impacting on our small businesses, reducing exports, hindering fishermen from exporting great Scottish seafood, and and also impacting on the overall UK economy with projections for the coming years of being among the poorest performers in both the G7 and the G20. And for us as individuals to get back what was one of the biggest benefits of being in the EU, which was freedom of movement, The narrative leading up to the Brexit referendum was all talking about freedom of movement as a bad thing, but actually what it allowed us to do was to study, live, love, and work in any one of 31 countries at that time, and would allow us to do that in any one of 30 non-UK countries if we go back in. Now, for me, a very important aspect to this is the fact that my husband's German. He spent his entire working career in our health service in Scotland. And I know how distressed he was at just having to apply for settled status, regardless of whether it was easy or difficult, got full status or um, provisional. The mere having to apply after 30 odd years in our health service was something he found distressing. Now his mother was Polish and his father was German. And they had great difficulties in being allowed to marry or to settle together at the end of World War II. And my husband, long before this mess happened, used to say, basically in one generation, he could marry who he loved and live where he liked. And that was something amazing. And in another generation, we're actually taking that away from our young people. So to me, the loss of freedom of movement is one of the most painful parts of Brexit. And of course the flip side of our freedom of movement has been people's ability to come to the UK and to come to Scotland um, and live and work in our communities just as he did working in the Scottish NHS. And so going back into Europe, regaining freedom of movement would help us with some of our particular workforce challenges in the NHS and social care, in agriculture and particularly in hospitality. But also science and research. Scotland is very much a research nation and being outside horizon and losing some of our researchers who were EU citizens has had a major impact. With regards to the protection of rights, many of which were negotiated within the EU We're constantly hearing threats here at Westminster that the UK government, the Conservative government might withdraw from the European Convention on Human Rights. It's not even a part of the EU, but it's part of their general anti-Europe narrative. Through things like the working time directive, um, other workers' rights, health and safety, maternity and paternity rights, the plight and the quality of life of workers in the UK has been improved. And obviously, these things could come under threat. And particularly for us as individual consumers, the retained EU law bill, which is currently wallowing in the House of Lords, while it's being watered down a bit, it still shows the direction of travel, which is to remove EU regulations that protect us, that protect our environment, our public health. The quality and safety of goods we buy and, in particular, to protect the environment that we live in, we already see things like the sewage discharges around the English coast from water companies. And none of us want to see these gains, these hard-won gains in cleaner water or cleaner air or safer goods actually being removed. And all countries face big challenges that can't actually be faced by any one country alone. And whether that is climate change, the refugee crisis, or currently with how Russia is behaving, the security of Europe, we want to be part of that collaboration, we want to work with others. Now, when you talk about Scotland's European future there's often quite a lot of discussion about exactly what we mean by the European future. And apart from complete isolationism, which we wouldn't support, we want independence, not isolationism. There's basically three key relationships with Europe that we could have. And we'll often hear people proposing EFTA, the European Free Trade Association, which only contains four countries, Norway, Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Switzerland. But because it's only four countries, EFTA on its own doesn't actually solve any of our Brexit problems. At all. So, what people mostly mean when they say, why don't we just join EFTA, is they mean EFTA and the EEA. And they're for the European free trade countries, but those that are also in the single market. So, that's the three, but not including Switzerland. And the thing is that that brings us back into the single market, but not into the customs union. So, we would still have customs borders with all the other EU countries and have regulatory borders with the rest of the UK. And that doesn't seem to me ideal. In particular, with the democratic deficit that we face at the moment, if we were only in the single market as part of EFTA, we become a rule taker. We're not at the top table. We don't contribute to the debate and we don't have a vote. And the other thing that is often overlooked is that because all the EU states are in the EEA, all of them have to agree to a new member joining. So the idea that this is something, oh, it would only take a month and we'd be in, this is just not the case. And it actually involves a significant amount of administration to write an independent Scotland into all the EFTA EEA paperwork and agreements. So for people who talk about, oh, well, we'll go into that for a few years, And then we can move on to the EU. A, that doesn't show commitment to the EU. It looks like we're half-hearted. And after the behavior of the UK over many years, and particularly through Brexit, that's certainly not something that the EU wants, is another half-hearted, non-committed European country. So for us, it would not show good faith, but equally, we'd be asking them a few years later to unpick the work they'd done to bring us into the single market through the EFTA EEA and ask them to redo a new set of administration to actually make us full EU members. So our policy in the SMP, and certainly my own personal belief and commitment is that we have to aim to be members of the European Union. That's what gives us full voting rights. We are part of that democratic group. We are at the top table. We can influence policy and we can find other European countries with very similar views to our own with whom we can work closely. We get full membership of the single market and customs union. So that brings down the barriers that are around us at the moment. And when people talk about the border to the rest of the the UK, in essence, what you have is you have an independent Scotland stepping outside the fence that is around the United Kingdom at the moment and therefore losing 30 other borders in exchange for one. We get full movement of people, of goods, of capital and of services, which is very important as financial services make up quite a big part of Scotland's exports and economy. And in particular, we get membership of all EU programmes such as Horizon, Copernicus, the Cl- the clinical trials portal, all the programs come as a package through membership of the EU. And I think that's something that we want to get back. Now, we often hear from people oh, Scotland wouldn't be welcome. You know, we're like Greece, but cold. Um, and therefore, we would just be seen as a problem for Europe and not welcomed. Now, having spent the last two years as the SNP Europe spokesperson here at Westminster, Going to Brussels, going to Berlin, meeting many ambassadors and other uh, active Europeans, I can say that just simply isn't true. And I would say number one reason right now is because of the energy crisis. I already had people talking to me about Scotland's energy potential before Russia invaded Ukraine and a lot of interest in Scotland. But of course, with the challenge that they face in Central Europe over energy security, That topic of conversation has moved right to the top. Scotland is a leader in green electricity generation. We aim to have 42 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2035. This is not necessary for Scotland's domestic use, although, of course, domestic use will increase as we have more electrification of cars and, and, you know, heating and, and other aspects like this. But this is envisaged to have excess green electricity, which we can export as we already do down to the rest of the UK. Scotland is a leader in floating offshore wind farms, having the first floating wind farms in production, and indeed also in tidal, having the first productive array in the Pentland Firth. And the thing about tidal, which unfortunately has not received the funding it requires from Westminster to develop fully is that tidal is baseload because you know when the tides are to the minute every day and there are four tidal movements two in and two out every single day by the clock and that means it's a very reliable source of renewable electricity regardless of weather but we also have particular future potential and the first is to use that extra green electricity to produce green hydrogen. And what we see is while we talk about the fact that we could put hydrogen into the domestic gas network, and indeed we could actually replace about 20% of the gas right now if we could produce enough of the hydrogen, but there are other ways to heat homes, such as heat pumps, et cetera. Whereas the areas where it's really difficult to replace fossil fuels is in heavy land transport, aviation and heavy industry, whether you're talking about steel furnaces or other forms of smelting. And that's why there's so much interest in Central Europe in developing a hydrogen net um, so that green hydrogen can be transported around from the parts of Europe in particularly the North, Norway and Scotland that have high wind speeds, Scotland has among the highest wind speeds in Europe that can generate this extra electricity that can be used to make hydrogen. We hear a lot about Germany, who of course were uh, dependent on Russian gas through Nord Stream, having to replace that. And I have certainly in my role as chair of the German Cross Party Group met with several delegations from some of the regional lands in Germany who have not just been visiting London in the last year and a half, but have also gone to Scotland. And Nordrhein-Westphalen in West Germany, which is where the Ruhr area is, has already signed a memorandum of understanding with the Scottish government because Germany will not import pink hydrogen or blue hydrogen or any other color of hydrogen. They are committed to investing in the infrastructure and import of green, completely renewable hydrogen. And of course, the Ruhr area is a major heavy manufacturing area. So we actually have uh, parts of Europe that are waiting for Scotland to be able to develop the hydrogen and to export it. And that is very much a Scottish government policy, but not particularly of interest here at Westminster, who see hydrogen production only as something for domestic use. We are aware that, of course, in the northeast of Scotland, we have the ACORN project for carbon capture and storage. And part of that is to basically capture the CO2 at source where you have heavy industry to store it in some of the old gas fields in the North Sea and part of that would be producing blue hydrogen where it is produced with fossil fuels but any CO2 is stored into the uh, gas fields in the North Sea. This was one of the leading carbon capture projects and indeed a promise in the 2014 election was that the ACORN project would receive funding. Here we are we are you know basically 8 years on and the first four carbon capture projects have been funded in England none in Scotland and certainly not the acorn project so we still don't have surety on the UK government actually funding that to go forward but that is something where we have a large storage area within the old gas fields where you could be storing CO2 and therefore making a significant contribution to reducing the CO2 damage because even if all the nations actually achieved what they promised in getting to net zero, under the line of the curve is the CO2 you're going to go on emitting every single year until 2045 or 2050. Carbon capture actually allows you to reduce that. And one of the innovations in Scotland is the biological capture of CO2. And that is that 85% of all trees planted in the UK are planted in Scotland every year. We hear a lot about peat restoration, but also the mapping and conservation of the seagrass meadows on the continental shelf around Scotland. And seagrass can actually fix CO2 at a much higher rate than almost any other plant. The next thing is just Scotland's position in relation to Europe. Now, number one, Scotland is a committed pro-European country. 62% of voters in Scotland voted remain in the Brexit referendum and polls show that this is now over 70%. We're a modern, progressive, liberal democracy that absolutely believes in the European project that Morag described as the peace project that started over 73 years ago. But Scotland's also in a very important geostrategic position. If you just look at the map on the right hand side of the screen, you can see that Scotland is the most northerly non-Arctic nation, and it sits exactly between the Greenland-Norway gap that connects to the Arctic. Of course, the Arctic has been covered by a huge ice cap up till now. But sadly, one of the impacts of climate change is that we see that ice cap receding. But what that is doing is it is opening up the potential for a northeast channel across the Arctic from Asia to the Atlantic. And that would shorten the travel of exports and, of course, their fuel use by about 40 percent when compared with going through Suez. So this is a a channel that if it opens up completely, then transporters and container ships are going to want to use that. Russia will also be using it more and more to access the Atlantic giving it uh, major seaports with easy access and Scotland is in a perfect position to work with its Nordic neighbours in both surveillance and patrol of this very important gap. Scotland is a leader in research and technology. We have 18 universities which is the highest ratio per capita in Europe And over 55% of our population have a tertiary qualification or degree. The Scotland produces 12% of the UK's leading research, even though we're only eight and a half percent of the population. And with external independent review, 84% of those publications have been classed as world leading or internationally significant. We particularly lead in things like life sciences and biomedical sciences, and of course, in things like games technology and digital development. And what many people don't know is that Scotland also has a burgeoning uh, space industry. This is based on what's called low earth orbit and earth observation. So we're not landing people on the moon or on Mars. But Glasgow makes more small satellites than any other city in Europe. And these satellites are put into a polar orbit, i.e. they're going vertically and perpendicular to the equator, passing over both poles. And in essence, as they orbit, the Earth is turning underneath them. And so these satellites can be used, whether with radar, uh, high resolution imagery or sensors to detect CO2 emission to study what's happening on our blue planet. So they can assess things like coastal erosion, uh, emissions, desertification, land use, etc. And this information can actually make a major contribution to tackling the climate crisis that we're facing. While Glasgow is a producer of the small satellites, and we already have a couple of homegrown rocket companies for launch, Edinburgh is developing as a hub for the analysis of the downloaded space data. But all of this comes about because of our position in a high latitude and yet with mild weather because of the Gulf Stream. So we are a perfect position For launching these satellites. And this is a major source of external investment in Scotland going forward. Scotland was also the first to publish a sustainable space strategy. And we already have our rocket companies and launch companies looking at reusable vehicles, looking at ecological fuels. Because if we don't want space to turn into the same mess that we've made of parts of the earth, we actually need to take action now. And Scotland's also a leader on well-being policies around the well-being economy and also around social justice. Most people in Scotland don't know that Scotland, the Scottish government, founded the Well-Being Economy Governments Group back in 2018 with Iceland and New Zealand. have since been joined by Wales and Finland, with other countries considering joining. Basically, what we have, and you can see in many of the Scottish government policies, from the baby box through free tuition to free personal care, is that the well-being economy is not about just constant growth and eating the planet. It's about investment in our citizens to ensure their health and well-being, but also that they achieve their full potential, and therefore they actually contribute to both our society and our economy. And this becomes the foundation of both. Now this is something else that is only possible with the powers of independence. There is no chance of getting a well-being economy approach here at Westminster, regardless of who is in power. This is the clear blue water between independence and being in the union. And with regards international development and climate justice, the Scottish government and Scotland carry this approach Forward. They led in COP26, which of course was held in Glasgow, by being the first country to fund climate loss and damage. Now, the amount we can contribute may be small, but it set an example and actually dragged other countries to follow. And the same happened at COP27 in Egypt. Again, Scotland committed additional funding, and even major players who had been reluctant to contribute to a loss and damage fund actually came to the table so even though we are a small country we can be like iceland and finland and be leaders and innovators that actually influence other uh, influence other major nations with our own international development scotland takes a very uh, partnership approach working in depth with countries like malawi and rwanda rather than spreading small amounts of money widely and having very little impact And in particular, Scotland aspires to a feminist foreign policy. This has already been drawn up, and it looks at international development and investment in developing countries through the lens of women and girls, but not just gender, also equality policy in general. So looking at disabled people, looking at ethnic minorities to ensure that any investment in international development has the greatest uplift in potential for that country and all the citizens of that country. So how does Scotland get into the EU? Well, number one right now is we need to try to be not dragged further and further away from it, and particularly away from European regulations and standards. That was the whole point of the Scottish Continuity Act, uh, which the Scottish Government wanted to have to try to preserve in devolved areas the european standards as much as possible. Now again you'll have heard of the retained eu law bill that that's in the lords that does give some powers to scottish ministers to also preserve european regulations in devolved areas. The problem is we've already seen how the Internal Market Act is deliberately used by the UK government if there's any sign of divergence. So while uh, Scottish ministers can say that they're going to keep a certain standard or workers' rights or quality or health and safety, whatever it is, that can be undermined, as we see the attacks on the deposit return scheme using the Internal Market Act we already meet what's called the Copenhagen criteria. And this is just basically about the governance of being a modern democracy, respecting the rule of law and human rights, and accepting our obligations under EU agreements. So that's something that would be agreed quite quickly. But obviously we have to work through the process. There's no shortcut for Scotland. And we do need to plan for necessary institutions there are institutions and regulators that are on a uk basis and we would need a scottish version in the same way as ireland has their own drug regulator their own regulator of the professions and we would need to get those in place we need to get the financial regulation and bodies with regards of future scottish currency and of course as i said we need to make arrangements With regards the border to the rest of the UK but that isn't something that we should be frightened about because when you look at our border and lots of people will say things like oh it'll be like in Ireland well I'm from Northern Ireland and it's nothing like the Irish border the Scottish border is a third the length it has less than 10% of the crossings that go over the Irish border but most importantly we can use technology on small roads such as cctv or number plate recognition which simply would not be accepted on an irish border the common travel area is expected to remain it would frankly look totally spiteful if the uk government were trying to withhold membership of the common travel area when ireland which is independent is a member so we're not talking about people in cars being stopped but there probably will have to be uh uh goods lanes that lorries would come off at the M74 and the A1, depending on what they were carrying. But there we would be able to use all the smart gates, all the pre-registration digital technology that simply, as I say, can't be used to solve the Irish border question. And we should also remember that actually many Scottish exports don't go in the back of a lorry anyway. Almost half of them are financial services. So they're digital. 9% of them are utilities. So things like gas, electricity, oil, they're in a pipeline. And even if you look at manufactured goods, over 60% of them actually go to Europe and the rest of the world, not to the rest of the UK. So an independent in Scotland, in Europe, would be looking to have an East Coast port with a direct connection to Europe. So in actual fact, the border is not as scary as people try to make out, but we do need to get ready for it. And we must recognize that rejoining the EU is a process. You're not out in the cold for years and then suddenly in. You're actually once accepted as a candidate country. Those candidate countries are actually supported by the EU with advice, with support and actually with funding to help them prepare. And as the various rules and regulations of the EU are met, different aspects of EU membership and single market membership open up. And therefore, the closer we can stay to the EU before becoming independent, the easier a journey we'll have back in. And usually it's possible to arrange an association agreement that actually enhances that relationship during the transition back into the EU. And that's something that clearly all of us on this call are aspiring to. But it's quite clear this is absolutely only possible with independence. Now at Westminster, Labour are supporting Brexit virtually as much as the Tories. So there is no short term option of the UK returning to the EU. I'm sure the EU wouldn't want the headache anyway after the last seven years they've been through. But simply the landscape here at Westminster wouldn't allow it. So it's only through independence we can get back in. My experience of meeting EU diplomats and politicians is they're very well disposed to Scotland. They saw that map I showed you at the beginning with all of Scotland yellow because every local authority area had voted remain. It is well recognized that Scotland didn't want to be dragged out of the EU, doesn't want to be where it is, and that we aspire to return. But it's our fight. They're not going to come here and campaign for independence for us. We need to win independence. And there's no shortcut or trick to gaining Scottish independence. You know, I will have people on Twitter or other things going, get independence now. OK, if you have an idea of how we do that, then please tell me. I'd love to be independent and out of this place as soon as possible. But there's only one way that we will win independence for Scotland. And that is if we have the support of the majority of people in Scotland. People in Scotland need to want it. And we are the people who have to gain that support. And that's by listening respectfully to people's concerns, answering their questions, but also putting the benefits of independence, including getting back into Europe. And to me, it's quite simple. Independence simply boils down to having the power. Having the power to fix the problems we have, like poverty or drug deaths, where we simply don't control the levers that would allow us to take a different approach. But also to utilize our huge natural resources, our land, our large marine area, and our energy wealth, for the benefit of our citizens, something we don't control, and in particular, to choose our future path and to choose to rejoin the EU. Thank you.
0: Philippa, could you maybe talk a little bit about how useful you think the Scottish Government's paradiplomacy approach is, i.e. the offices in Copenhagen and other cities, arranging visits of EU countries, ambassadors and other activities?
1: I think they're very important. Um, We also have uh, Scottish Development International. I mean, they're not just in Europe, but obviously they are part of these uh, Scotland houses because it gives um, it gives Scotland a profile in its own right. Many of them are in British embassies, uh, not in Brussels. Brussels is is separate but it's having the teams there who know Scotland, know what our industrial strengths are, and can actually make those business arrangements. And if you look at things like foreign direct investment, um, we're second only to London. And that is because, contrary to what we've heard from the Foreign Office recently, we have Scottish ministers Going out and selling Scotland's strengths and selling our exports, making deals, whether in Japan or Europe or elsewhere, to promote Scotland's strength. So to me, actually, I'd like to see more of them. I'd like to see more of them in their own right rather than just inside embassies. But actually, it's the team and the team's knowledge uh, that actually does the job at the moment. So I, I think they're well worthwhile. What worries you most about the long path Scotland faces in returning to the EU? And what do you think we as grassroots supporters can do to address your concerns? I think my biggest concern is things like the retained EU law uh, bill is Scotland being dragged further and further out of the orbit of the EU. Uh, More of our standards and regulations being reduced and therefore, we have a, a bigger job to get back and meet the key to meet the the rules of the EU. I mean, at the moment, obviously, we haven't been dragged all that far from the point of view of standards. But equally, the EU is still moving forward and the UK isn't keeping up. So the longer a time it takes us to get back in, the more things we will need to do to realign with Europe. Um, and so part of that is trying to protect within the devolved areas at least to protect the standards regulations quality safety etc so that at least in those areas that we control we are aligned with the eu and as i say that's very much something that was the whole point of the continuity act and i think these are things that As grassroots um, campaigners for both independence in Europe, we need to get people to understand that, you know, when you say, oh, you can have a referendum in 20 years or whatever, we will have lost all of that. Um, And we will already see generations who didn't know about the gains of Europe actually not sure what the relevance is. It's our generation who knows what we've lost and therefore we need to work to make sure that we get it back for our young people and ourselves.
0: Apart from the obvious economic hit of losing the European Medicines Agency from London, could you talk a little about the impact on UK healthcare of no longer being in the EMA?
1: Oh gosh, that's a whole other talk. Um, Basically, there's multiple. I mean, I would say number one is workforce. Workforce is the biggest single challenge to all four health services, uh, particularly post-COVID. Um, And we had, you know, significant members of EU staff within hospitals, GPs like my husband, um, nurses, but also, I mean, there were parts of Scotland uh, where Scottish care mapped ahead of Brexit and found that 30% of social care workers were EU citizens. So we already saw immediately after the referendum an almost 90% drop in European nurses registering to come and work in the uk and that has not recovered so you know losing people um we're still stuck outside horizon um even though because of the windsor framework actually the uk could now get in They're they're bitching about how much it's costing even though that's holding back research and for me as as someone who was involved in clinical trials and medical research one of the things we don't get back uh, is the clinical trials portal Um, which reduces the bureaucracy, makes it much easier to collaborate, to share results, et cetera, in clinical and medical trials. Because it's not about just saying, oh, we'll give you as much money as Europe. High quality research is about collaboration and working together. Um, And and that's something that, that we're missing out. And the other thing is, because we're not in the EMA, and the EMA accelerated how quickly new drugs got to patients. And countries like Canada and Australia are between six months and three years behind the US and the EU because they are two huge markets. Is, you know, future trials are always current best practice versus the new drug. Well, if we're not even using current best practice because it's not been fully released here, we are also going to drift further and further back in research. And what we've seen is the the UK licensing, drug licensing, has licensed far fewer drugs um, than the EMA. So it, it really is holding things back. They were very well recognized. They did about a third of the assessments for the EMA, because many countries still have their own system that contributes collaboratively to the European Medicines Agency. But now they have to do everything. And they have to do all of the pharmacovigilance on side effects, et cetera. And yet they've had their budget cut by the UK government. So they're being asked to do much, much more with less. And of course, they're having to duplicate what the EMA do and there'll be many uh, drug companies, and this is the reason for the delay, is they'll go, well, am I going to you know, go through the cost and time of registering my new drug to get access to 60 million, or will I crack on and get access to 450 million? Well, the decision is obvious. So, so the UK is going to tend, going forward, to get access to new drugs, new cancer drugs, at a slower rate than Europe. There's a question here from Marlene Holliday. She says, do you have any thoughts on the disparity between Scott's support for EU, say about 70 percent, and support for independence about at about 50 percent? And I'd like to ask, uh, add to that. Do you think that those who uh, talk about joining EFTA, that it's just a cover for people who actually don't want EU membership at all and may even be Brexiters? Um, no, I don't think so. I think uh, people who talk about EFTA, it's more they think it's a shortcut and it's easy and it's quick. And as I tried to bring out without kind of going too much into detail, it's not. It's a destination in itself. Um, The EFTA countries would welcome Scotland, but not if we tell them that, no, we're only coming to perch here for a little while and use you to get into the EU. So no, I don't think it's people who are Brexiteers. It is, sometimes it's people who just want to have a different view from the SNP but it's also people who think somehow it's just quick and easy and the problem is we would then be caught between the customs barriers to the eu so our fishing industry farmers etc would still be caught up people who manufacture using non-uk raw materials would still be caught up with rules of our origin uh, if it's more than 50 percent that's non-uk you you have to pay tariffs so we'd still have quite a lot of the barriers and we'd have the regulatory barriers to the rest of the UK so to me it's it's being in the EU we exchange one border to the rest of the UK with having no borders to anywhere else and to me that seems the best deal even just on the basic level for trade with regards the disparity is obviously we know in. Scotland um you know the Scottish conservatives uh un, under Davidson were against brexit but of course they were also against independence so people you know in the past were thinking well you know which union do we do we value well i know from being down here for 8 years we're not at the top table here we have very little ability to influence anything here and if you look at the the things that europe can do To us, it's actually very limited. Whereas here, Westminster pulls a lot of the levers and strings that we don't agree with. So we get a lot of policies enforced on us, and that's not what you get with the EU. They couldn't park nuclear weapons in Scotland, they couldn't actually cut benefits or create the austerity that we've had from down here. They're not the ones who have mismanaged the economy. Uh, you know, as we saw last autumn under the Tories. These are things that happen in in the UK. So to me, what we need to gauge is of that 20% who support the EU, but not independence, those are people that we need to reach out to and speak to. We need to get them to understand if they really are serious about getting back into the EU, we can only do that as an independent nation. And obviously, that is what we need to gauge is just how strong is their desire to get back into the EU. Now, we already know that under 50s, the majority support independence. And we also know that over 80 percent of younger people want back in the EU. So the more you're looking at younger and younger age groups, the more those two things actually align.
0: Would you be able to comment on the damage that Brexit has done to disabled people, especially people with mental health problems and the additional damage that is coming down the track if the Tories and the Tory impersonating Labour Party continue on their current path of eroding rights and damaging health services, which has an impact here due to loss of revenue via Barnett consequentials? Yeah, I
1: mean, obviously the... Scottish Government are struggling at the moment because the Scottish budget is not uh, protected from inflation. And therefore, in essence, has taken the equivalent of a 10 percent cut. Um, So it makes maintaining our key budgets really challenging and maintaining our key policies really challenging. And obviously that then affects anybody who depends on a public service, whether it's disability or um, or illness. What we have seen maybe not so much to do with Brexit and more to do with austerity, which we've had since 2010 when the Tories came in, is basically this kind of, you know, othering of people, you know, workers and shirkers, the, the kind of strivers and skivers and talking about people with either chronic illness or disability as if they're all just pretending. We see that in their Disability assessments, work capability assessments—how aggressive many of them are—and if you go back to the the Welfare Acts of 2012 and 2016, disabled people in both of those took an absolutely major hit. And therefore, while everyone is facing a cost of living crisis to some extent, and there are groups in society, particularly women, particularly lone parents, and particularly disabled, who are are very much hit and have, you know, multiple layers where they're actually getting hit by several policies at the same time. And one of the things that isn't done here is cumulative impact assessments. You know, what if you are a lone parent, disabled woman with three children coping with the two child limit? You know how all of that comes together to take away your income. We did have things, obviously, that were a concern early on about, um, you know, obviously, our, our, our health passport to Europe, our ability to get health treatment in Europe. And um, obviously, there has been a negotiation back that you can get emergency treatment there. And um, one of the groups that that fell through the cracks at first was people reliant on d- dialysis. You know, you can't get insurance for that because that's not something you might maybe need. That's something you categorically need three days a week. Um, And so initially they weren't able to travel or holiday in Europe. There are agreements that are in place now, but the overall package of access to healthcare, as if we were uh, a citizen of any of those European countries is not the same as what we had before. Fishers and trawlers were all for Brexit. Have they changed their view? And two, what is the European attitude to Scottish membership of NATA, N-A-T-A and our SNP's commitment to get rid of Trident? And he also uh, congratulates you on your clear presentation. Thank you. Uh, though I may need to ask what exactly is it NATA he means or NATO?
0: I think, assume it's NATO.
1: Oh, right. Okay. Uh, right. Well, with regards, um, the fishermen, they didn't all support Brexit. The fishermen in the northeast, the, the vast majority did, and the Scottish Fishermen's Federation, uh, under its former leadership, there's been a change of leadership, uh, very much was going on and on about the sea of opportunity, etc. What we've seen from those fishermen and trawlers, these are large boats. They own a lot of the quota, almost all the quota in Scotland, among a few companies, they actually fish out in deep sea, and some of them were actually landing their catch directly into the EU, which you can do with unprocessed fish. um, Which therefore actually has a big impact on the fish markets, the fish processing, and the fish sellers um, on land, which would actually employ more people than the catchers the west coast industry is a totally different industry it's mostly smaller boats Uh, it's often non-quota catch because it's held on the in the northeast and particularly in my own constituency our fleet was catching lobster and langoustine 85 percent of that was in the Paris market within about 24 hours they have literally been on their knees struggling with this ever since brexit we've already had boats sold there's even been apparently two boats broken up and the the clyde fishermen's association actually withdrew from the scottish fishing federation during the brexit campaign because they felt it was not speaking for them so this idea that all fishermen voted for brexit no they didn't but many did and that's because Frankly, they were lied to. And unlike the fisheries minister in 2020, I did sit and read the entire fisheries chapter uh, of the the, um, trade and continuity agreement, uh, trade and cooperation agreement. And in actual fact, for half of the catch, there was a tiny shift of quota towards the UK, literally, you know, one or two percent. And there were only three fish stocks that had more than five percent quota shift. And at that time, quota swaps weren't allowed. So of our two key fish, cod and haddock, they were actually going to be able to catch less. So fishermen were utterly, if you excuse the pun, sold down the river. So people who are campaigning, you know, I see it a lot on Twitter. Oh, serves you right. You voted for it. Well, you don't know whether that person voted for it because many of them didn't. And it is still a premium industry in Scotland, our wonderful seafood, fresh seafood, our salmon, etc. So, you know, regardless of how people voted, we should recognize its importance, particularly for coastal communities, and we should be trying to get them to see that becoming independent and rejoining the EU is absolutely in their best interest.
0: In coverage of the appalling South Sudan situation, the UK media has been notable for failing to explore the apparent separation of the UK's evacuation efforts from those of the EU nations. Whilst EU citizens have been evacuated by any of French, German, Italian and other flights, um, UK citizens seem to be reliant on a UK standalone effort. Given the UK had much to offer a joint evacuation, for example Akroteri or warships in the region, why has there been zero discussion of the impact of global Britain acting alone instead of cooperating with our neighbours?
1: I think kind of lack of discuss uh, lack of discussion is that the fora within our media now are, are don't really lend to that, and certainly here in Parliament don't really lend to that. But it's absolutely right. One of the pitches in twenty fourteen was oh the broad shoulders of the you know the embassy network across the world um consulate support etc but we saw both in afghanistan and sudan that actually the embassies were evacuated very quickly and then mps who were trying to get constituents out were just being told there's no information we can't tell you anything because there was no longer a, a source of information on the ground whereas if you are an eu citizen you can go to the embassy or consul of any other EU state, and they will help look after you, not just in a crisis like Sudan, but also if you're away on holiday somewhere and you get into difficulties, any EU citizen can go. And of course, we've left that network, which means that people are utterly reliant. And what we saw was the huge delay in the UK actually attempting to evacuate British citizens at all, and also the terrible way that, Sudanese citizens who live here in the UK, some of them doctors in our NHS, have struggled to to actually uh, get recognition and get evacuation back. So I I don't think either the Afghanistan evacuation or the Sudanese evacuation have have covered the UK in glory. As you say, they do have resources. They could have been a major contributor um, instead of actually just simply detaching themselves. You know, the UK is cooperating with EU nations over the Russian invasion of Ukraine, so they could set aside some of their, um, you know, ideology and arrange to do that in situations like Sudan, Afghanistan and other similar situations which will emerge in the future. It's not that there's a shortcut for us. We are outside the EU. But this idea that we are just going cap in hand with nothing positive to offer is something that we should be combating all the time and talking about Scotland's strengths and what we can actually bring to the European table. So thanks again very much, Philip. Especially after a busy day at Westminster and you're stuck down in London. So we really, really appreciate it. So thank you.
0: Well, hope you enjoyed that event as much as we did we're very grateful to yes for eu for letting us share the audio from their event and if you have an undecided friend or someone who keeps saying ah but what about after this would be the perfect podcast to share with them we'll be back again on friday with another episode of scottish independence podcasts so thanks for listening everybody and we'll catch you later bye now